the, the, the question basically becomes, how easy is it to find a drug for a particular disease? How many do you, you know, trials do you have to do? How many different campaigns do you have to do in order to yield to produce one that's, that's successful? But I look at that history the other way around and, and look at it as how many have failed, how, how few new drugs uh, have been developed um, recently, and, and how many fail even fairly late in the process. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Manual labor is expensive, particularly when it comes to informatics and data science. There are certain routine aspects which can be automated, which reduces human error. However, generally, bioinformatics is often considered a pain point and bottleneck across drug discovery workflows. We'll discuss the failures and complexity of drug discovery and how to use informatics to improve the quality and quantity of targeted drugs and therapeutics. Today, we're here with Dr. Robert Murphy. I'm Bob Murphy. I'm the Ray and Stephanie Lane Professor of Computational Biology and head of the Computational Biology Department in the School of Computer Science at Carnegie Mellon University. Thank you for being here. Let's jump right in. Um, I guess a lot of the research that you've been doing is around uh, active learning. Could you kind of describe, just for context, the failure of reductionism? And could you explain the issue around complexity and scale when it comes to developing new drugs or therapeutics? So beginning before I was born, there was a movement within uh, biological science away from descriptive biology to mechanistic biology that was associated with uh, the advent of reductionism, the idea that you could take biological systems apart, figure out how the parts worked, and then you would understand how the whole worked. Um, many of your listeners are familiar with this, but reductionism has been a primary uh, model for biological research for many years. And there were a tremendous number of successes, including you know, discovery of um, the genetic code and um, protein uh, folding mechanisms and a lot of things that were learned through that mechanism. About 30 years ago, we started to realize that biological systems don't work that way. Mm -hmm. and that it would be as if you're taking a car apart and you discover that the carburetor is connected to the brakes and the brakes are connected to the air conditioner and you know the air conditioner is connected to the door latches and all of these parts are just um, cross-connected. And one of the ways we discovered that was by looking for genes that affected a particular function and finding hundreds, if not more, that would affect what appeared to be a simple uh, function. Uh, and also, looking for proteins that interact with each other, we found that not a small number of proteins were interacting, but in many cases, you know, hundreds that might be interacting in a particular co uh, complex or in a particular system. Right. So this gave rise to uh, so-called systems biology. Um, and that was a, an important paradigm shift that you moved from a reductionist perspective of let's take things apart and figure out how they work to a perspective of saying, well, these are way too complex 
for us to take apart. They have emergent properties, as we would say, that only arise when they are a whole uh, that you would not understand from the from individual parts. So, that's, so we need to start thinking of that. When that was beginning, uh, it was around the time that uh, automation and high-throughput uh, instrumentation for, for collecting biological data was becoming possible, you know, following on the heels of the Genome Project, for example. Um, and so the paradigm became do a large number of experiments. Right, so expression or increased or decreased expression based on a series of drugs that you're treating a particular cell line with or multiple cells with. Right. Okay. And that paradigm, though, and typically um, was not so common in drug discovery as it was in more basic biology where you would do you know, all of the experiments for, let's say, like the NCI60 cell lines, you would measure sure. RNA expression for all of the cell lines in the NCI60. Uh, and then the idea was to build a predictive model from that set of exhaust, small set of exhaustively sampled data that was supposed to be able to predict behavior for uh, other cell types or other conditions. Right. Um, and so this was really the beginning of the recognition of the importance of computational modeling because people weren't able to hold all of the variables in their heads in order to try to predict what would happen if you did a particular kind of experiment. Sure. Um, now, unfortunately, associated with that came the sort of unintended consequence that you do a lot of work to, to collect the data set, you do a lot of work to build a predictive model from that data set. Naturally, you're going to want to convince the community that that model is valuable. Um, and this gave rise to the concept that you're going to validate the model, um, which is another word uh, for trying to prove the model. Sure. But what have you really learned, right? You certainly have not proven the model because all models are wrong. You can't have an empirical model that is proven. You can only test specific predictions from the model that does not test the model itself. Right. right? And so that is where we've moved from reductionism now into systems biology, but we're now going through another paradigm shift, which I'd be happy to tell you about. I guess one thing to point out is a lot of the wins specifically around chemical drugs, you know, the, do you consider those gra grabbing the low-hanging fruit or, or why do you think we've been so successful and then kind of shifting into more modern approaches and more modern drug discovery techniques? Why haven't we been as successful as the past? So historically, there was a pretty wide open space and a lot of potential low-hanging fruit. We wouldn't know what it was going to be until people actually tested it. I look at that history the other way around and, and look at it as how many have failed, how, how few new drugs uh, have been developed um, recently, and, and how many fail even fairly late in the process. From my perspective, one of the reasons that that um, effort has not been more successful is that the current paradigm is to identify a target and do what is often an exhaustive screen of many, many compounds against 
try to see whether they have activity on that target. Pick a handful that are uh, positive, you know, for that particular assay, and then begin to do uh, further development as you uh, down towards identifying a particular uh, a particular drug. So um, more of like a funnel. Of narrowing down candidates and screening out ones that aren't showing whatever response you're looking for. Absolutely. And that funnel um, eliminates things, but it also obviously selects things. The things that are being selected are the ones that had good activity against the target. The problem is that as you, the further down the line you get, the higher the chances are that you'll find out some they have properties that you don't want. Obviously, sure. we all know this. And so um, from my perspective, the uh, failure is in the funnel being too tight too soon um, and that we're not selecting compounds for not only the desired effect but against undesired effects sure. earlier in the process. And I'm not talking about just simple things like toxicity but rather more complex effects that may not show up until um, – uh, even after a drug has been released. Referring to adverse events or side of other consequential uh, side effects of, of a particular compound. Right, which may take years to show up. Right. And the issue is, would you have been able to anticipate any unwanted side effects if you had a more complete uh, picture of the activity of any particular compound? Then the question becomes, how do you do that? 10,000 different potential targets, and just picking that number, you know, a million potential compounds, that's a huge experimental space. And that's um, where a number of years ago we started thinking about, well, how do, we, how do we solve that problem? Right. So this is all about building the predictive model and validating in order to prove, improve the model, uh, which is around the, the subject of active learning. Right. So we don't use the word validate. Okay. <laughs> uh, because of that connotation that you're proving the model, that the, right? And, um, but improving a model is the thing that is, that is uh, achievable. Sure. Right? So whatever the, the amount of data it is, whatever the current model that you have, you can always try to improve that model. And the question is how? What should you do next? The technology of active learning is active machine learning has been developed specifically for that kind of problem. Just to level set, we we did one episode around machine learning and artificial intelligence, but just could you describe in the larger scheme of AI, ML, where does active learning fit into that? Sure. So most of the machine learning that you've heard about is passive. You collect a large data set, find one on the web, or you know, take, for example, take all the photographs on the web, and then... Uh, and then you build a model, and then you use the model. Now, that passive learning, the human, or the designer, is making decisions about what information the model should be built on. Right. They build the data set, hand it to a machine learning algorithm, and then it produces a model. Active machine learning is about giving control over what data the model has available to it to the machine learner. Uh, and we've all been the subject of active machine learning. Uh, every time you get an email or a text or a, a ping on your app from Amazon or Netflix or your, you know, you name it, um, that says, "Hey, wouldn't you like to try this?" 
the vast majority of those are, are basically uh, active learning in that the, the company is building a model of your preferences based on whatever information they have from you. Sure. And then they're using that model in two ways. One, to exploit it, to give you things that they think you're really likely to like. But two, to further explore it by suggesting things that might be outside of, of your high confidence predictions right. um, and asking you, for example, do you want to you know, watch a Western and you've never watched any Westerns before? Sure. Right? So kind of applying that to the context of drug discovery, um, could you, A, speak to labeling data and using unlabeled data, which, which I guess is the, the criteria which your machine learning is, uh, model is trained on, um, but using the same example of, of sort of Amazon predicting what I would buy next uh, and, and uh, kind of diving into that second example of suggesting something that I wouldn't normally purchase, right? I, I see a direct correlation between that and drug discovery and, and looking at things that I may not be originally considering. Yep. So in trying to build a model, predictive model, uh, in a large space like we've been talking about, of many targets, many, many drugs, um, the natural thing that experimentalists would typically do if they had such a model would be to do the high confidence predictions like we were talking about before and exploit the model to say this thing predicts that if I you know use this drug you know against this disease this this will work well and there is that is absolutely fine that is absolutely an appropriate use of a model sure but the other side is what we've been talking about about improving the model where what you're going to want to do then is do experiments that give you information for parts of the model that you have little confidence in so that you can improve it. Part One of the fundamental principles behind active learning is, is to try to do experiments that will, in expectation, result in an improvement of the model and, doing, and, doing, and following that threat. And um, one of the essential aspects of it is that it's iterative that you do typically a small number of experiments or a small number of trials or whatever in order to improve the model and you keep repeating that process because that data will inform the decisions you make later. Right, and the goal there is to collect the best data at minimal cost. Yes, and by the best, the data that improves the model the, you know, the, model the most, right? Right. And so that's also then where that trade-off comes in because if you only care about one specific target, then you're going to probably want to do more of the exploitation route, whereas if you are more, more interested in getting a good overall model, then you're going to do more of the exploration route. Um, now, one of the things that was very interesting, we did uh, with some collaboration, um, some experiments where we took um, the uh, compounds that a particular company had developed as part of a refinement of uh, an initial lead compound into the, the final compound driven by a medicinal chemist who was saying, okay, well, let's make this change, let's make this change, and so on. Um, so that data and the, the, the measurements were all available to us for all of those compounds. And, um, and as I said, the, the results of the assay that they were working with were available. So tweaking the, not the active ingredient, but more of the excipients and trying to make a more stable compound or? The, exactly. Okay. They were, they were, they were modifying it. 
Um, and what we showed is that even in that situation, um, that if you do essentially the greedy approach that is followed by typically by a medicinal chemist, where you're saying, I think this will improve it the most, therefore I'll make that compound. Um, if instead you build a model of the activity that you're expecting based on very, the, the structure space that you're looking at, and spend those first few experiments trying to fill out that model, improve that model, mm -hmm. and then switch to exploiting it, that we were able to get to the best compound in the set that in half the time that the medicinal chemist had, had done, which meant saving half the money of the development of that particular drug. Now, in other experiments, we've taken a big chunk of the PubChem database um, and hid all of the results that were had been currently acquired and ran an active machine learning algorithm on that asking the database for the results of an experiment. So pretending that you were doing an experiment, it had already been done, but you're pretending that you were gonna you know, uh, do it yourself anew and ask the database for the result, build a model. And in that case, we were able to find 60% of the hits in that big chunk of PubChem while doing only 3% of the experiments. Wow. Right? Wow. And that's the kind of thing that we need. Right, right. And, and your background focused, I guess, on computational biology, right? So uh, explaining or analyzing the data once data are generated. I guess with, with this shift into active learning, you're also concerned about the design of experiment, right? In, in which experiments can I do? What's the minimum set of data that I need in order to improve the quality of the results? Could, could you speak to that a bit more? Yeah. So part of the answer is recognizing that we need to be a bit more humble about uh, our ability to predict things from models and recognize that computational analysis is not a replacement for the data generation process, that they need to be married to each other. And active machine learning is, in my opinion, the way to, to marry those two things. Or more generally, AI-driven experimentation is the way to marry those two things. So you're right, I was coming at it from the perspective of mostly analyzing existing data, although we also had done some work in building data sets in order to build models from them, but again, human-constructed data sets that you later learn a model. Um, and in realization that that was not in the whole field, that was not working as well as it should, sort of brought me to this notion that we could have to be more humble and not saying, I have this great model that is going to predict everything, but rather say, I always need more data in order to try to improve this model. And that's what sure. led me into this space. Right. And then going back to a point that you raised just in terms of labeling data, uh, I know it is really expensive um, and unlabeled data is cheap. How do you decide what to label and what to, to, to not? <laughs> yep. So first off, we need to distinguish between two different settings in which we may um, do any machine learning, but especially active machine learning. And one of those is where there is such a thing as unlabeled data. If you wanted to do different drugs versus different targets, 
Imagine that you had no information about the similarity between targets or no descriptors of the targets or no descriptors of the drugs. Or maybe you decide that you don't um, believe or don't rely upon whatever descriptors you do have. Right. So then you have a situation where all of the experiments in that experimental space are equivalent and all unlabeled. And the only way that you can learn something in that case is by finding empirically from the data, the similarities that exist between drugs or between uh, targets. Right? And that, uh, that approach um, we can think of as a matrix factorization problem, that you're basically trying to find a lower rank approximation of that matrix in which captures similarities between the various experimental values. Sure. Right? So that's, that's one paradigm that you know, is, is, is often relevant, in, in my opinion, in, in experimental science, where you're not necessarily sure you know how to measure similarity. Right. Back to the first case, that's the more typical active learning case where you have some labeled information, some labels, and some a lot of uh, unlabeled information, and the types of approaches you take for the two problems are are different for that reason. Just taking a step back, uh, where where do labels come from, uh, and and what observations do you think should should be labeled? So that's a, that's a great question. Um, we sometimes have. Uh, an excess of confidence in humans for the doing the task of, of labeling. Um, and so there really are two paradigms again there, one in which we believe that humans have the necessary expertise to label something, and another where we may not. Um, and in the case of experimental science, um, the results of the experiment themselves can be a label of a, of a kind, right? Sure. So that, um, again, and in the automated science approaches that we've been um, pursuing at, at Carnegie Mellon, the, 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 the focus there is not having to have any input other than whatever experimental measurements that you're making. Considering this active learning loop, right, you know, just this iterative testing process. Could you speak to how this model is used to characterize what additional information would help improve the model uh, kind of further, you know, thinking about the characterization of, of what, which queries to, to, to pursue? So it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about informativity, you know, versus uncertainty, that in, in whatever space one has defined as the experimental space that you care about, um, and assuming you've made a choice as to whether you want to exploit or explore, uh, then you have to use one of these approaches to decide what experiments to do next, right? Um, and by the way, we really are at a unique point currently um, in terms of being able to do fully automated science um, that takes advantage of the fact that these computational models can account for more things than any human can not only in terms of predicting what the outcome would be for some un unperformed experiment, but also for this whole issue of choosing what to do next. Um, so there is a, a lot of automation in, in laboratories nowadays, you know, especially in pharma and, 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 and academic labs as well. L laboratory automation 
that is still being driven by humans telling it what to do. Um, and we are now where the field of self-driving cars was about 20, 25 years ago, where there began to be automated cars, meaning cars that could be driven by wire, could be driven under computer control, but there were no um, machine learning systems yet that could learn how to do that driving. Right. And that's where we are now, in my opinion, with respect to laboratory automation. We're ready to make a transition to automated science where we not only do execute experiments automatically with, with instrumentation, but we choose what experiments to do and how do we choose them. It's by this process of model building and followed by active learning uh, to try to improve the model. Right. Right. And we just started last year uh, a master's program in this space. It's the first in the world, a master's in automated science focusing on biological experimentation that is teaching the combination of three things, the engineering principles behind design of automated instruments, laboratory automation, the computational biology principles of model building uh, from experimental data, and the active machine learning and AI principles beside, behind trying to decide what experiments to do next, uh, given the model. Um, right. And we're very excited about that. Gosh, it was quite a while back reading about Adam, the robot scientist, right? And I think what was uh, really interesting about that for me was that they were not only able to create the model, but also apply it in the context of drug discovery. Um, how do you see Adam uh, sort of playing a role in, in future drug development? Well, um, Adam was a very important step because of that connection, such as we've been talking about, uh, between the experimental data acquisition and the computational analysis and the decision-making process. In that, Adam was built and could only do one thing. The hardware only had one capability. Mm -hmm. um, and. The associated software was a decision tree following uh, approach that was just identifying which experiment to do next based on that decision tree. And it was a very important result for that reason. But now we're in a situation where we have much more general purpose laboratory automation that we can tie to our machine learning systems. But in the future, you see a lot more automated science. Absolutely. And I think the, the space in which we have the most potential for growth is in more basic experimental science, um, where we have much more complex problems and systems to understand. Uh, and I see a future where we don't do experimental science the, by defining a grid of experiments and executing all of the experiments, but rather where we choose some system, some framework that we're trying to understand, express that as a, an experimental space that we are trying to build a model from, uh, and then use automated equipment to do that. And so I think there's very little doubt in my mind that the future of experimental biological science, at the very least, is automated. Thank you for listening to Bio Radio. I'd like to thank Robert for being our guest today, speaking with us about active machine learning for drug discovery. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. 
This podcast is an original creation of BioRad Laboratories. BioRad is a trademark of BioRad Laboratories Incorporated. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.